So our scripture reading for tonight is from Ezra, the first chapter, and it says, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm, and also put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, said. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem and Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem and Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. In any locality where survivors may not be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose heart God has moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. All their neighbors assisted them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with valuable gifts, in addition to all the free will offerings. Moreover, King Cyrus brought out the articles belonging to the temple of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and had placed in the temple of his God. Cyrus, king of Persia, had them brought to Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. That's an awesome baby name. Uh, this was the inventory. Gold dishes. Or, do you want me to read the inventory? Oh, yeah. Okay, okay. Just sure. This was the inventory. Take note. Gold dishes, 30. Silver dishes, 1,000. Silver pans, 29. 10 gold bowls, 30, matching silver bowls, 410, other articles, 1,000. In all, there were 5,400 articles of gold and of silver. Shesh Bazar brought all these, all these along with the exiles when they came up from Babylon to Jerusalem. Thanks, Andrea. I love that list. I wonder what some of those other articles were. I think it would probably be like some nice chains, you know, some bling, maybe an alarm clock around a massive gold chain. What was that guy's name, that rapper? Flavor Flav, thank you. I knew I could count on you, Tony. Um, Andrea, thanks for reading. Guys, as I was preparing for this message, it came to my mind, I don't think I've ever heard a sermon on the book of Ezra. Has anybody out there heard a sermon on the book of Ezra? Yes, wow, we're all in it together. This is gonna be fun. Um, I really enjoyed preparing for tonight's message. I had no idea that this um, book was just such a rich story full of truth about who God is and how he worked with the people of Israel as they returned to their nation after their time away in Babylon. So I'm going to set a little bit of the backstory here for you so you can know uh, the context of the book of Ezra in case you haven't been here these past few weeks. So our series this spring semester has been called Home in a Way. And so we started off with five weeks in the book of Daniel, talking about this time in the life of the Israelites, where God put them through this experience of judgment as a result of their failure to be obedient to his word. He sent them into exile in Babylon under this pagan nation. And so they spent about 70 years there. And Babylon was actually conquered by the Persians. And so the story tonight that we're going to be reading is right after the nation of Babylon has been conquered by the Persians. So there's a new king in town, and as Andrea read, he made some changes. 
but before I launch into the story, I want to ask you a question. Um, and the question is this. Have you ever had a trip before you where you're going to this place you've never been before and you had these ideas in your mind of what it would be like and then you made that trip and uh, maybe some things about it were similar to how you imagined some things were really different? Have you ever had an experience like that? Uh, I want to tell you about a time in my life where I had that experience. So Brittany, my wife, and I got engaged in May of our senior year. And her family, her entire extended family, is from Oklahoma. And so when I started dating Brittany, she had these stories of trips that her family had taken to Oklahoma. And like they just loved it, like swimming in a creek and eating fried food three meals a day, um, seeing armadillos on the side of the road. And so I had this trip planned with her to go out and meet her extended family, which kind of terrified me, to be honest. Um, in Oklahoma, and so as we journeyed across the barren wilderness that is um, Missouri to <laughs> to Oklahoma, um, and finally got out there, it was it was really funny. Some things were exactly like I imagined it would be, you know, like these long straightaways, these roads that extend into the distance for miles before you even see a tree, these creaky oil wells going up and down. I I saw a dead armadillo on the side of the road. Um, that was that was really funny. That's what I thought it would be like. But I was really surprised by how friendly people would be. I thought they would like sniff out the fact that I wasn't from around here, um, which, funny enough, they kind of did. But that made them really friendly. I remember running down this country road, and this old lady pulled up to me, and she said, "Son, you're not from around here. Who are you staying with?" And I said, "Oh, I'm staying with Lois Roth. That's my wife's grandma." And she said, "Oh, Lois, she's a good friend. Tell her I said hello." And uh, Oklahoma, who'd have known? <laughs> But you guys have taken these trips, right? Where you had these expectations of what it would be like, and uh, maybe your experience lined up, maybe it didn't. The reason I, I want to bring this to your mind is the story of the book of Ezra is the story of Israelites traveling to a place they had never been before, but they had heard so much about. The land of Israel, uh, think about this. They've been in exile for 70 years. Odds are, none of the Israelites who were among this first group of about 50,000 people to make the journey back to their homeland, I imagine none of them would have been alive when they were put into exile. And so these people have heard so much about Israel. They've heard so much about the stories of their forefathers walk with God in this place, this promised land that he led them to after their exodus from Egypt. It was a place where God was with them, that he used them as a light to the nations to show what it looked like to live as a people walking with the living God. And so here they are, making this journey back to that place. And uh, this was the home God had promised them. It was the place that he led them to. And here they are, making this journey that they'd anticipated for so long. And we have to keep in mind that they had been exiled from Israel as a result of their failure to be obedient to God. Um, but God used them in exile in Babylon to make his name known to that nation. And the story we read tonight... Uh, is recorded in the book of Ezra. And something you need to keep in mind is that Ezra and Nehemiah are actually one book read together in the Hebrew Old Testament. That's called the Tanakh, the Hebrew Old Testament. And so the first time these books were actually separated, um, maybe you've taken a church history class. I know Quinn has anybody out there taking a church history class. There's a guy named Origen. He's a theologian. Anybody heard of him? Um, Origen is the first person to separate these books and uh, he actually separated them and called them Ezra 1 and Ezra 2 instead of Ezra and Nehemiah. 
because both of these books were likely compiled by Ezra. And so both of the books tell the story of the Israelites' return to their nation after this time in exile as a result of the decree of King Cyrus. And so over these next few weeks, we're going to dig into these stories. They show so much about what it looks like to walk as God's people um, and that tension between his promise and the circumstances of our lives may not necessarily lining up in the way that we would expect. Uh, but God is totally faithful, he's totally in control, and he has their best. He brings his will to fruition in the midst of some real obstacles. Uh, God is not going to be thwarted in his ability to accomplish his will. And so uh, tonight I'm really looking forward to going over first three chapters of Ezra. And uh, as Andrew read for us... <coughs> This is, uh, this is the first group of three sent back, and this is about 538 B.C., and the details surrounding the return of this group are kind of crazy, and so let's work through that passage. If you have your Bible, if you could open up to Ezra chapter 1, that would be great, and we're going to jump from there into Ezra chapter 3 in a little bit. But this is a pretty crazy, a pretty crazy story of how Israel returned to their land. So... As we read, Jeremiah had prophesied of this day that Israel would return. We can actually see that in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 10. This is what it says. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. So this is a really clear prophecy of Jeremiah about the day that they're now experiencing, this time when God would return them to their land. But as we kind of progress through the passage, it's really strange how things come together and bringing them back to Israel. I don't think it's the way they would have imagined it. So we see that Cyrus, the king of Persia, made a decree to send whoever the Israelites he wanted, who wanted to go back to Israel, that they could go back to that land. He made this official decree that they would go there along with the Persian prince who was in charge of the land of Israel. And so this was an official decree put in writing, and he told them he specifically wanted them to go there to build a temple for the worship of their God. And additionally, he provided them with silver and gold goods and livestock and even offerings for this temple that they would construct to offer them as sacrifices to their God once it was built. And they were to provide those things to survivors that they found in the land as well. And so on top of that, all those things that Andrea read, those many goods and the 1,000 assorted articles of Flava Flav, alarm clocks on chains, um, things of that nature, he gave them back these articles from the first temple constructed by Solomon, which probably did not include alarm clocks on chains. And so he gave them back these articles that had been stolen by King Nebuchadnezzar that they would be able to have them back in their temple. And so this is really insane. The Israelites are granted what they've been waiting for for so long, uh, return to their land, but even so much more on top of that. Interestingly enough, all of this as the result of a pagan king. When we read Cyrus's decree there, we're tempted to think, like, wow, is he a believer? But Cyrus was totally not a follower of the God of Israel. Uh, how does this happen, that Cyrus would make such a decree? And we read it very clearly in verse 1, that God moved Cyrus's heart to make this decree. But I think we also have to be aware of the fact that all because God didn't, um, pardon me, all because God moved Cyrus's heart to make this decree doesn't mean there wasn't something in it for Cyrus as well. There was certainly something in it for Cyrus on a personal level. And so the religion of the Persians at that time, which is King Cyrus's background, 
Their religion was a form of Zoroastrianism. What a great name. Zoroastrianism was this religion that was originated about 1400 BC, near the time of Moses. And so it was a religion based on the teachings of a man named Zoroaster, and it was really only around 500 years old around this time. They're not entirely sure if it originated around 1400 or more around 1000 BC. And so Zoroastrianism is now more of a monotheistic religion, and I say more of one because it's kind of unclear. The teachings of Zoroaster aren't well known. Um, they aren't clearly documented, but at that time, the practitioners of Zoroastrianism believed that it was also beneficial to worship the gods of all the nations that they conquered, that they might not only have their gods' favor, but the favor of the gods of the nations they conquered as well. And so Cyrus, when he conquered these other nations, made decrees to support the worship of these foreign gods, which would include the god of Israel. And so this is part of Cyrus's ruling policy to benefit his nation. He's going to cooperate with the religions of the people he conquered, and he encouraged exiles as well to go back to their homeland. And so we need to remember, Cyrus's decree here wasn't uh, part of this stand for the uniqueness of the God of Israel. This is more of an effort to benefit his own kingdom and solidify people under his rule. Uh, this is really different from how the Israelites would have imagined things playing out. But this is how God, in his sovereignty, chose to bring them home. And you know what? If it wasn't for Cyrus making this decree, then the people of Israel wouldn't have been able to go back to their land and offer sacrifices and build a temple for their God. The living God of Israel chose to work through the actions of a pagan king in order to bring about his worship. Um, you know what? This is pretty crazy when we think about this. It kind of twists our paradigm. In his sovereign power and wisdom, God chose to return his people to their promised land through Cyrus's decree. He blessed them through someone who didn't even follow him. And uh, I have to say, we need to think here for just a second about some quick points of interpretation and application before we move on in the passage. Uh, this is how God chose to renew his people, to restore them to their land. And uh, it's totally clear here that God can accomplish his will however he so pleases. Uh, we just have to watch him work. I think that we had better not waste too much time and energy worrying about the circumstances and conditions that need to be established for God to be able to work in our own lives or in the world, right? Um, you can hear people say things like, if so-and-so gets elected or if this law is passed, then Christian faith in our nation is just going to crumble. Uh, you can hear people make these fatalistic statements like that. You can hear people say, oh, with our postmodern culture, Christian faith in the U.S. is going to be totally crumbled and distinguished within the next two generations. And this is, get real. Yeah, right. Um, when God decides to act, nothing is going to hold back his hand. God can bring renewal in any circumstance. God is all-powerful. He is totally able. He's sovereign over everything. Nothing's going to hold back his hand. He can use forces that might seem to be in direct opposition to him to accomplish his purposes in the world. That's exactly what happened through the actions of King Cyrus here. And so um, God is powerful. God is able. God is wise. We don't need to doubt him. Um, I don't think postmodernity is going to ruin our faith, guys. And so the second thing I want to talk about, and the last thing I want to talk about tonight, is the beginning of Israel's rebuilding efforts once they were at home. 
And so if you have your Bible open, you can switch over to chapter 3. That's where we're going to be for the rest of the evening. And uh, to set the stage for that, we need to know that the two key leaders in this first group of Israelites who returned back to their nation, and this is a big group, 50,000 people who returned in this first group of Israelites back from the exile. Their leaders were men named Zerubbabel and Jeshua, two other good names, almost as good as Sheshbazar and Meshibosheth, or however you said that other one. Um, and so these two men are leaders of this first group of exiles who come back. And so you're wondering, where, where's Ezra? Uh, Ezra himself actually came back with the second group of exiles about 80 years later after the stories we're reading tonight. And then Nehemiah came back 13 years after Ezra. And so if you're in chapter 3, we see here that Ezra, once this first group had been back for about three months, they're in the seventh month now, which was actually the beginning of the Jewish calendar, uh, they're, be they're beginning to get settled in the land, and all the people are gathered together, and under Zerubbabel and Jeshua's leadership, they began to rebuild. And so here they are in this city that is just in shambles. Uh, it wouldn't have been in the state they'd imagined from the stories they heard. And so here they are, they barely caught their breath from this 900 mile journey and now it's time to rebuild. So where do they start? We're going to read here verses 1 through 6 in chapter 3. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, the people assembled as one man in Jerusalem. Then Jeshua son of Josadak and his fellow priests and Zerubbabel son of Shilatiel and his associates began to build the altar of the God of Israel to sacrifice burnt offerings on it in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Despite their fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and evening sacrifices. Then, in accordance with what is written, they celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles with the required number of burnt offerings prescribed for each day. After that, they presented the regular burnt offerings, the new moon sacrifices, and the sacrifices for all the appointed sacred feasts of the Lord, as well as those brought as freewill offerings to the Lord on the first day of the seventh month. They began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, though the foundation of the Lord's temple had not yet been laid. And so we read here that they start with building an altar. Uh, does this seem like a strange place to start rebuilding a dilapidated city to anyone else? Why the altar first? So we read here that when God gave the law to Moses, when he gave him this law on Mount Sinai, we see this recorded in the book of Leviticus, he set up the sacrificial system, uh, the system of sacrifice as a way for the Jews to make atonement for their sin. This was the basis of their relationship with God. This was God's means for closing the gap between their brokenness as a sinful people and himself as their holy God. And so as God's people, they had to repent of their sin in order to be in relationship with him. Their sin separated them from him. And so God established this way for them. In repenting of their sin and offering a sacrifice at the altar, they could be granted of mercy. And so constructing this altar first showed that they knew that when they returned to this land, they needed to found their renewed nation on the right basis. And so the temple would come, the walls to protect their city would come. A market for economy, for their flourishing would come. But if they've learned one thing, it's that when they're building anew, they could better start with the altar. And so 
Let's read here. When God instructed Moses in the book of Leviticus, he told them, when you come to sacrifice, this is Leviticus chapter 1, verse 4, he said, you are to lay your hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it will be accepted on your behalf to make atonement for you. The burnt offering, that's the sacrifice that he's talking about. And so they laid their head on the burnt offering before they sacrificed. And what this was, was a symbol of identification with the sacrifice. They would lay their head on the animal and basically be making a gesture of the fact that they're saying, this should be me. Um, this should be me. God requires a sacrifice of atonement for sin. But it's not just this mechanical action that he required. God wanted true repentance from those who brought sacrifice. David expresses this so well in Psalm 51. After committing adultery with Bathsheba, David was convicted of his sin. Uh, he comes and writes this song before the Lord. And after pouring out his heart, confessing his deep need, the depth of his sin, he says this, he says, God, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. And so it wasn't just this mechanical action. It was the heart behind it that God desired most. And so as we think about this, uh, we need to consider that just like the Israelites, we are a people ourselves who are deeply in need of God's mercy. And it's not just this mechanical action of saying, God, I screwed up, um, man, that God desires. He requires true heart repentance from his people. And um, guys, as we've been talking about this semester, it's our great hope that in overcoming our sin, um, our hope isn't that one day we're perfectly going to be able to repent of everything and always get it right. Um, it's not that we're going to be able to have this perfect heart that recognizes everything we've ever done wrong. Our hope is in the ultimate sacrifice that's been made on our behalf. It's that when we turn to Christ who came to God's people amid their continued failures, that's the story of Israel that we've been following, God has been faithful in coming to a people who've been failing repeatedly to be obedient to him. In the same way he comes to us while we're still sinners, God laid his son, Jesus Christ, on the altar to be the final and ultimate sacrifice for our own sin. And so Christ came before the Father, um, not out of coercion, but he came willingly. He said, here I am, I have come to do your will. And so it's through this ultimate sacrifice, the sacrifice of the body of Christ on the cross that we're made holy once and for all. Christ presented himself as the sacrifice for atonement through the shedding of his blood. Uh, that's Romans 3.25. And so, guys, when we talk about this concept of sacrifice, this altar that they began their rebuilding efforts on, we ourselves, um, when we look to Christ in that same way that the Israelites put their hands on the head of that animal and said, this should be me, when we look to Christ on the cross, in our hearts, we should say, that should be me. That should be me up there. But God, in his ultimate sacrifice, gave his own son that we might not be condemned to death, but freed from the grip of sin and given eternal life when we trust him in faith. And so, 
as we think about the Israelites returning home and beginning to rebuild their nation with the construction of the altar, when we think about how do we rebuild our spiritual lives when we recognize our need, it has to start with recognizing our sin, with repenting of it, and looking to Christ's sacrifice on our behalf. His sacrifice has to be the foundation of our lives. That's what our relationship with God and our relationship with each other is built on. That's what it depends on. And so as we prepare ourselves for Easter here over these next uh, few days as we lead into Resurrection Sunday, I want to encourage you, make the work of Christ, his perfect life and his death on the cross for the atonement of your sins, the foundation of all of your life like the nation of Israel did in their rebuilding. What will you build your life on? Um, Will you trust in the sufficiency of God's sacrifice or will you look to something that you've done and say, oh, what's the next step? I've been there. I've done that. What can I build on my own? All of our lives are to be built on the foundation of faith and what God has accomplished in Christ. It's a huge mistake for us to have our spiritual life over here on the foundation of Christ and then to build the rest of our lives on the foundation of our performance. On the other hand, we are called to be one people in Christ. And... uh, I want to read something to you from the Apostle Paul. In his letter to the, to the Galatians, he's writing to this church that has trusted Christ for salvation, but is being led astray by a group of people among them who say, Jesus is part of the way to salvation, but once you've trusted him, you need to meet the requirements of a religious culture in the way you live if you really want to be right with God. And so Paul hears about it, and he can hardly contain himself. And correcting this error. So this this book is only six chapters. And in verse 6 of the very first chapter, Paul is already like lighting these guys up. This is what he says. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. So basically he's saying you built your life on this foundation of repentance and faith in Christ. And now you're turning to a new foundation. He says, this is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we've already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. This is strong. Uh, Guys, I don't know if any of you are like me, but I love to listen to podcasts when I'm driving around town. Just to kind of like fill that time, I try and learn something. Um, But I don't learn a whole ton because most of the podcasts I listen to are like funny things on NPR. Has anybody ever listened to Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me? That's a good one. Big Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me fan. I know you guys listen to Serial. Who out there listen to Serial? you got to get on that. Listen to Serial. It's a really good story. It kind of builds on each other from week to week. But uh, the two types of podcasts I listen to most are about, like, athletic training and nutrition. Those are two of my hobbies. And something that's really funny is I feel like people come up with these new ideas on nutrition for sports, like, every other week. Like, one week they'll be like, oh, my gosh, like, high fat, low carb, that's the way to go. If you're a serious athlete, then you've got to, like, be eating tons of, like, avocados and coconut oil and, like, raw meat. And then you hear these people who are like, oh my gosh, like if we're going to be good athletes, then you have to be eating paleo, like berries and nuts and meat. That's all we need. And uh, I feel like there's a different idea on what the best diet for athletes is every single week. And it's so funny because half of them contradict each other, and they all claim to be backed up by research. And uh, 
So basically, what Paul is saying here is that is not the way it works at all when it comes to figuring out how to live out your spiritual life. The truth has been found. It's not up for grabs. There's not new revelation coming next week based on a new study to find out how to live life in a way that is meaningful in a relationship with God to have justification from sin. There is no new information coming. And Paul basically says that if somebody comes to you and preaches any truth other than this gospel of grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, if it's me, if it's an angel, don't listen to them. Because that's total garbage. Uh, Paul is so serious here. Don't abandon the gospel for anything he's telling them. This is a huge deal. Repentance of sin and faith in Christ isn't just the entry point into the Christian faith. It's the foundation for our entire lives. We never move past it. It's always about Christ's performance and not ours. Uh, Paul says it this way in his letter to the Colossians. Just as you received Christ, Jesus says, Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him. Strengthened in the faith, just as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. This is what, God, what Bob was talking about this morning. We never progress past our need for grace. We only move deeper into it. We don't need to search for new intellectual territory. Um, we don't mature beyond our need for God's grace for us in Christ. Like Paul says here, we live our lives in him just as we received him rooted in him so we're rooted in him but not just rooted we're built up in him that's how we grow we grow in grace that's where real progress lies not in looking forward but looking to what he's already done and only when we constantly keep our eyes on his grace for us in christ are we able to see progress through the gift of his grace and the power of his spirit at work in our lives it's all about his grace relying on it more and more recognizing our deep need for it. I don't know if you guys are like me, but there are some times where I'm like, man, like, I can't wait until I'm more mature and I don't have to depend on God so much. Um, what a terrible idea. That is not the way we're supposed to live out our lives of faith at all. Um, our walk with Christ is all about dependence on His grace. It's all about the power of His Spirit working in us and through us that we might be able to know his love for us and then love and serve others. We never should look to be less dependent on his grace. Maturity is about depending more on it. God, I'm absolutely desperate for you. All that I am, all that I want to be is a result of your work in my life. And so I remember a time when this truth hit me really hard. I grew up in the church, uh, my dad was a minister, and my faith was something that I really took ownership of when I was in high school, and I really wanted to be a Christian leader, and uh, I did the best I could to, to fulfill the ways I felt like God had called me to do that. I walked with the Lord through college, and uh, when it came time to graduate, I was really doing the best I could to figure out how God had called me vocationally, according to the way he wired me to serve others uh, with who he made me to be. And you know what? I found... Uh, I found some fulfillment in that, but as time went on, I more and more felt a feeling of discontent because I was never feeling significant enough. I never felt like I was doing enough to be faithful enough to what God had called me to do. I never felt like I was as successful as I should be as a result of who God had made me to be. When I looked at the grace he'd given me and the performance that I was delivering, I was convicted of my sin and feeling like I should be much better than I was. 
And rather than resting in his grace and trusting the sufficiency of his gospel, I really became weighed down and felt very demoralized as a result of looking to my own performance as a basis of my relationship with God. My contentment was based on what I could do and how I could perform, how others perceived me, rather than who God had made me to be in his son. Rather than living in response to grace, I lived to make myself feel like I justified my place in the world and said, you know what, God, you gave me that grace, but I, showed, I sure showed you that you picked a good one to give it to. Um, man, I wore myself out. And it was through the gift of a strong community that was willing to call me on my self-righteousness, on my sin, and looking to myself as my own savior and my performance as my basis of right relationship with God that I was finally able to see progress. Um, man, isn't it kind of crazy how sometimes when we finally admit our absolute brokenness and need that God can show us the bigness of his grace and the sufficiency of it to cover over all of our lives? Um, God met me with that in a powerful way, um, experiencing contentment in Christ rather than looking to my own performance to justify me, um, brought such peace, such life, and such hope for me. And uh, my prayer for you guys is that as we move into this week of Easter, that this will be a time for you to come to God with that kind of honesty, where you are honest with him about what you're loving most in your heart. Uh, what is your heart seeking after? What are you searching after most? What do you need in your mind to feel like you're sufficient, to feel like your life is on track with where it should be, like you are a person um, that really matters? Where are you looking for contentment? Where are you looking for justification and right relationship with God? If it's in anything other than his work through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross and his resurrection from the grave, it's not going to deliver. But in Christ, God's grace is so much bigger than we could ever imagine. It encompasses all of life. It gives us new life every single day. It gives us hope no matter what we go through, all because of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And so, um, will you make that the foundation of your life? Um, just as Israel founded their nation in returning from exile on the sacrifice, we too must place our lives um, on the altar, recognizing our sin and our need for a Savior. And God has met us with that in the work of Christ. Let me pray for you all. Father God, um, it is in the gospel that life is found. We are called to be a people who look not to ourselves, not to our own understanding, but look to you alone for meaning, for purpose, for hope, God. Um, our lives make sense in light of the work that you've been doing in this world from the beginning of time to bring us back into right relationship with you. And we thank you that you've met us with mercy. Um, while we were still dead in our sin and lost and um, looking for the way, you met us with truth. You met us with ultimate and final hope. Um, in Christ's sacrifice, we are freed. We are given that life and that is life everlasting and so we pray that this week you'd help us to experience that in a powerful way that we would uh, lay our lives down recognizing that you've paid it all for us god and that true life is found in you and that um, god we wouldn't be a people who live in a way that we are all about ourselves that we'd be a people who put you first that we know your love for us and respond to that by loving others and we pray this in christ's name amen